Welcome to the Reclaim Your Rise podcast. My name is Lauren Bongiorno, a nationally board certified health coach and founder and CEO of Risely Health, where we help people and families impacted by type 1 diabetes take ownership over their lives so that they can transform with more freedom and confidence. Everyone has a different reason to be here. You might be seeking knowledge, support, or community, but at your core, I know that you long for something deeper. You're here for transformation. And that's what the Reclaim Your Rise podcast is all about. I reached out to a major diabetes organization in the country and asked for help. And they said, this is an eating disorder problem, not ours, not not us. And uh, so I reached out to a major eating disorder organization in the country and I said, this is what I'm doing. And they said, this is a diabetes problem, not us. So I knew this had been happening for... 30 years at that point, and no, no one wanted to talk about it. A quick reminder before we start the show that nothing you hear on the Reclaim Your Rise podcast should be a substitute for personalized professional medical advice. Please always consult your physician or other medical professional before making any changes to your diet, insulin dosages, or healthcare plan. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Reclaim Your Rise. I'm recording this at the beginning of the month, but when it comes out, it'll be Eating Disorder Awareness Week, which is not by coincidence. I really, really wanted to make sure that the episode of this week was centered around the challenges that people with diabetes face when it comes to relationship to body and food and specifically insulin. I could not have brought on a better guest for this topic, but before I introduce her, I wanted to share some stats to frame the conversation, which I thought were worth noting. Um, Women, number one, with type 1 diabetes have a 2.4 times greater risk of developing an eating disorder than their non-diabetic peers. And number two, research conducted by the Jocelyn Diabetes Center suggests that 30% of diabetic women between the ages of 15 and 30 manipulate or omit their insulin in order to lose weight. Now, not seeing, not saying that men are not, you know, struggling with relationship to food challenges or insulin, um, but the you know, stats and a lot of the research shows that it is a lot higher in women. So I wanted to share that. Um, also at Risely, you know, we've coached over 800 people, but about 500 of them, I would say, or a little bit more being women. So I can tell you that this tracks and also keep in mind that there is a spectrum to everything and only, you know, your relationship with food, your body and insulin, and to take some time reflecting on that. So you can know the level and type of support that you need. But for today, I brought on Erin Akers, the founder and executive director of Diabolemia Helpline, otherwise known as DBH. She actually shares towards the end of the episode um, what DBH stands for in addition to Diabolemia Helpline, and it's so beautiful. In general, the last 15 minutes of this episode were, I mean, it's just going to hit you so hard. So make sure you stick around to the end. Um, But I brought her on to specifically talk about her personal and professional experience with diabolemia, which if you don't know what it is, it's proven to be the most dangerous eating disorder to have in which people with diabetes are not giving the amount of insulin they need. And as a result, letting their numbers run high, often leading to DKA and a host of other terrible short-term and long-term complications. I will say that this episode is one of the most authentic raw, heart-wrenching, but also inspiring at the same time conversations I think we've ever had on the show. And I, I wasn't even expecting that, to be honest. I was like very caught off guard in how deep we went. And everything about it is going to hit you right in the heart. Um, and I also think that you don't have to be actively struggling with diabolemia to get something out of it. So that's all I'll say in this intro. Without further ado, help me welcome my guest, Erin Akers, to the show. And let's rise. 
Erin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here with me today. I already know this is going to be a great conversation and help so many people. And I just can't wait to see how the conversation evolves. I am so excited to be here. I have listened to so many of your podcasts and heard so many amazing stories from the diabetes community. I'm excited to be here. Yay. And I was just saying to you, uh, saying this to you before we pressed record, but I I hope that the intention for this episode is to, yes, raise awareness around relationship to insulin and body and and food challenges. um, And also, you know, give people who are struggling like in the dark and feeling really alone in this and, and not feeling like it's a safe place to reach out for support because they don't know what that looks like or if they're you know, is actually a community that, you know, they're not alone, that there are people out there struggling, that they feel like they have a next step and they don't have, it doesn't have to be something that is, you know, so full of shame. So, you know, I, for everybody listening, like, please, this is a safe safe space for you to be. And we're, you know, excited to have this conversation and bring it to light. So, you know, Erin, in the theme of the podcast, you know, with the reclaiming your rise, which is rising above our challenges and reclaiming life beyond our limitations. Can you share a story of a time that you reclaimed your rise or help someone else reclaim their rise? I I really love this question because Diabolemia, the Helpline's logo is the Phoenix. Um, And it's because I've always uh, believed really strongly in the amazing strength that lies when you can grab a hold of all of the possibilities that exist at rock bottom. And then you believe with everything you have in the fire that lies inside of you to ignite your dreams and lift you up to a new life. And I've been thinking about this question a lot um, because I've heard so many amazing people with diabetes give so many um, amazing answers on other Reclaim Your Eyes podcasts. And the first answer that I wanna give uh, initially was uh, the leap I took to grabbing a hold of my recovery. Deciding it was initially time for help will always be um, one of the hardest things that I've ever done. But truthfully, at that time, I was 18 and only 50% doing it voluntarily, um, to be honest. And I want to answer in a time when like, I was the one who reclaimed my rise, um, doing it like for myself. And I think that that would have to be a few years into my recovery when I started slipping. And the same way you can stop making diabetes your priority in life, Um, you can also stop making recovery your priority. And that's what I did. I stopped making it my priority. Um, And then I would refocus and then I would slip and then I would lose sight of my goal and then I would slip. And it's called the recovery relapse cycle. And if you don't allow yourself the grace to make mistakes, you fall deeper and deeper. Um, And I allowed myself no mistakes, um, no grace, no forgiveness. And the disordered eating behaviors crept back in. And before I knew it, I had been using diabolemia behaviors for months and months and months. Um, And this is all while I was running diabolemia helpline. In January of 2012, after another late night DBH board meeting, um, where I said nothing of my own struggles to the top experts in the world on diabetes and eating disorders, um, so embarrassed that I could fall again. I am surrounded by the best of the best in this field. And I, I didn't utter a world word. Um, and they all, they all left. Um, and then in the middle of the night, I got up to get um, a glass of water and I fell just on like carpet hallway and totally would have been no big deal. Well, I shattered seven bones in my leg and uh, nearly snapped my tendon. Um, I had to be rushed to the hospital where it took six hours, two hours longer than it was supposed to. Um, 13 steel screws and two steel plates to get all of the bones realigned. And I woke, when I woke up, 
um, my leg had been left open due to all the swelling um, from the metal that was inside. And, uh, but I couldn't feel it. Uh, they had put uh, a, a nerve block in. And so I just, I was talking to my mom, my best friend, um, but I don't really remember anything that was said. All I remember was thinking, oh my God, they're going to figure it out. Like they, they're going like what I'm doing, they're going to take my eating disorder away from me. They're going to realize I'm I'm back in it. Um, and I, I kept saying I had post-surgery fog, um, but I was legitimately like petrified. Sometimes like stopping mid-sentence, just lost in thoughts of how I could explain away my injury because they would like take me for bone density tests and my bone density was fine. They would take me for a different tense, a test and like my blood test would be fine. And they could not figure out how a healthy young woman could shatter seven bones falling on carpet. And, and I couldn't figure out how I was going to explain this away. And it's all I was trying to do. And then suddenly every cut incision they had made, I could, I could feel, and it was the most intense pain I, I had ever experienced. Um, and I went from like crying to screaming so fast. Like I, I didn't even realize I, it was my voice sobbing. And it was decided that they would give me a, a dose of narcotics, um, temporarily dull the pain until I figured out what to do next. But because my body was so weak from not taking my insulin for months and months and months, and we're talking about putting your body in DKA over and over and over again intentionally, week after week, my heart stopped and my breathing stopped and I flatlined. And what passed next? Um, I always say it's the longest 56 seconds of my life. I'll never remember. And when I came to, um, there was like a nurse sitting on my chest giving me CPR. And there was one next to him talking about putting um, defibrillation pads on me. And I knew I had just died. Knew it. My very first thought was, oh my God, they're going to make me stop taking my, start taking my insulin now. And, and, and then like I heard this sound and it was like the saddest noise I had ever heard. And it was something guttural and animal. And I popped open my eyes and there was my mom just like in the corner, leaning on the wall because she, she couldn't support herself. And the look in her eye was something I had never seen, not on like TVs or movies or anywhere. And it was this look that said, my, my baby girl has, has just died. One of pure pain. And I knew I had to do whatever, whatever I had to, to ensure that, that that look, that sound would never cross the face of someone I loved again because of something I did. So I did something that was harder for me than any diet or any exercise regimen. I asked for help. Um, and I asked for help when I was in a place where people were asking me for help. Um, when I was the professional who knew the answers to other people's problems, I had to admit I could not figure out the answers to my own. I went back into therapy and um, the board, that's when the board uh, for, for DBA um, decided to create the healthcare education series, which would later become the International Conference on Diabetes and Mental Health. Um, it became so clear that just because we're professionals doesn't mean that there's not a whole world of learning for us to be doing, almost more so. And just because we've been in recovery for so long or we've been on top of it for so long, doesn't mean we can't fall. And so I think that for me is, is really what I lean into because I was so sure I had it. I was so sure I, 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 was, I, was, I was done, I was done with it. And then I wasn't.
And so I think having to ask for help that second time was so much harder. And so I'm so much prouder of, of what I accomplished from that because that climb back up felt so much more, I had so much more shame from it. Oh, wow. So much to unpack there. Thank you for, for sharing that, uh, you know, with us was why the second time was so much harder, maybe because you felt like, well, if I relapsed, then who's to say that I'm not going to reach out for support next time and relapse again. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there was the, I think there was the fear that if I admit that there was, this this was a real relapse, then then any time could relapse. If I can relapse once, what was to stop me from relapsing a second time or a third time or a fourth time? I was unwilling to acknowledge that uh, recovery was not linear. I believed you start here and you end here. And I was unwilling to give myself that grace of falling that like, well, you know, you start here and some days you're here and then you go up and then you go down and then you, you know, the same way diabetes is not, you know, a straight up and down line when you get diagnosed and then you're a perfect diabetic, a little more and more every day. I was unwilling to acknowledge that like there are hard days in, in recovery and days when you're not going to be on top of it and days when it, it's going to, it's going to suck and you're not going to be great at it. And I, I wasn't willing to give myself that. And so I thought that if I fell once, it meant that I would, I could fall over and over again um, without any, any, any place to stop. A lot of the questions that I have and probably a lot of people listening have right now is like what you do when you feel like you are having a day that is relapsed, like that you feel like you're going to relapse or maybe not even using that word, maybe feeling not as strong and committed to your recovery journey and questions on, you know, where's your relationship with insulin today and yourself. But before we get there, you know, I think it's helpful to understand what your background diagnosis was and how you got to that point. So if you can share a little bit about what your diagnosis journey was like, I know, you know, only two weeks prior to yours, your brother was diagnosed. So what was going on around that time? And how early on do you believe that the seeds were planted that led you to struggling with body image and relationship to insulin? Such great questions. Uh, okay. So we'll start with my, uh, my diagnosis journey. Um, so yeah, my brother was diagnosed two weeks before me. I was kind of, I have kind of a fluke diagnosis story. He had has a very typical diagnosis story. Um, he had your t- all your typical sto- uh, uh, symptoms. He was losing weight. He was thirsty. He was uh, peeing a lot. You know, all your 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 beyond type one classic signs. Um, and then one day he passed out at school, and he was rushed to the hospital, and he was diagnosed with diabetes. Honestly, nobody was super surprised. And in fact, my parents, um, they kind of laughed, like, how could we not have seen this? Because um, my mom's mother is a was a type 1.5 diabetic, and my dad's sister was a type 1 diabetic. So both sides, um, they, they basically were like rock, paper, scissors, who gave it to him? Could have come from anywhere. And so two weeks later, I ended up with an infection and uh, had to go to um, urgent care. And they had me do um, uh, a, a, a standard urinalysis, um, you know, kind of test. And uh, they walked back in and they said, they asked a question about um, diabetes. Does diabetes run in your family? And my mom laughed and she said, oh, well, her brother got diagnosed last week or two weeks ago. And the nurse said, you should take her to his endocrinologist. And my mom kind of looked at her and 
And and she goes, why? And the nurse said, there, there's a lot of sugar in her urine. And my mom just looks at her and she's like, no. But they didn't do a blood test um, because they didn't have any of the symptoms for diabetes. So they sent me to the endocrinologist for the next day. Um, he said, I'll fit her in, you know, this. Mm. So he fit me in and uh, I had not had any of the symptoms. I was not thirsty. I was not tired. I had not lost any weight. And so they fit me in and my sugar was 267. Very, very low for someone with, um, you know, type 1 diabetes. And I was actually an overweight child um, where a lot of the seeds of my body image issues kind of stem from. And so my pediatric endocrinologist who would not get the best Yelp reviews, let's just say, actually looked at my mom and said, well, given her size, she might actually have type 2. You never know. And my brother was diagnosed with type 1 two weeks prior. I was nine years old. I wasn't 100% sure what that meant, but I knew it wasn't good. Because when you start a sentence with given her size, that's not, you know, you're not like given her size as a beautiful woman. You know, they don't, that's not what people were saying in 1999. And so uh, that was like the first thing I heard about diabetes and in relationship to, to size and, and body image. And my mom pushed hard because she's, she's my advocate always. And she said, you give, you give her a C-peptide test and then, then we'll talk about types. So he gave me a C-peptide test because I happened to live next to the University of Washington, which is one of the leading diabetes centers, and came back to one. And that the day that it came back was exactly two weeks after my brother's diagnosis. And I remember my mom saying something about like, it'll be fine. We can do this. Like, we'll just, we'll do it as a family. Like, this will be like our family's project to take on. And, you know, we threw out everything that had sugar in it in the house Everything became sugar-free, Kool-Aid, sugar-free Jello. It was just like, my mom acted like it would just be like a small switch. And I remember thinking that like my life had just been turned upside down and, and half of what I thought was going to be my future was suddenly not. And, and it was just like, it's fine. We'll get, you know, we can't do strawberry Kool-Aid anymore. We'll do great. Can you tell that I remember which Kool-Aids they made sugar-free back in 1999? <laughs> And then it, it also wasn't my journey that had happened. It was it was me and my brothers. And so there was also a, a, an air of like, well, it's just like, it's just what, 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 what we're going to do. And so, and he got it so fast. Because if you give my brother an algebraic equation, an A plus B equals C, he can do it. And for him, this was just figure out what algebraic equation worked for him. And so he was just like, figure out what... Figure out what the pattern is, right? You always say it. Figure out what your body's pattern is. And for him, he was just like, he got home and he was just like, I don't, I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to go to doctors. I don't want to see anyone. If I can figure out what this pattern is, people will leave me alone. So he was just all about figuring out how to make it so that his blood sugar was fine so people would stop talking to him because he's an idiot. And I was so despondent over the fact that it felt like no matter what I could do, I never could get a bl good blood sugar. I never could figure out, I could never get a good A1C. And I could never, ever be as good as at my brother at this. Um, it felt like a video game that I always lost at, no matter what I did. And I never had a blood sugar below 10, or I mean, sorry, an A1C below 10 in those first couple of years. And we got diagnosed kind of right at that, that line of being like, I was 10 years old, uh, or I was just about to turn 10 when I got diagnosed, and my brother was just about to turn 12. And so... Um, my doctor told my parents, you can take control of it, um, but we would recommend giving control to them so they always have a feeling of independence over their diabetes. And so I was really told to like take control of it. And so 
I tried, but I was not good at it. I I really resented the fact that I I couldn't ever be as good at my as my brother, and no one ever stepped up to kind of tell me, well, it's because it's not just eat sixty grams of carbohydrate and exercise enough, right? There was no talk of fats. There was no talk of proteins. There was eat your 60 grams, exercise enough. And I was like, can somebody say more? And there was no saying more at that time. I'm trying to remember which podcast it was because I've, I've heard so many. But one of um, the gals we were talking to talked about how she had a lot of resentment when she was diagnosed. Um, and uh, it led to a lot of anger. She was, she was already a social media influencer when she got diagnosed. She already had like 100,000 followers when she got diagnosed. I mean, she was diagnosed as an adult. And it gave her a lot of resentment that led to a lot of anger. And I felt that because I was a child and I felt a lot of resentment towards my brother, which led towards a lot of resentment towards my diabetes, which led to a lot of anger. And I just decided, you know, why bother? Um, and I also had a lot of anger and resentment towards my, um, my body, uh, cause I had a lot of body image issues, to be honest, um, my struggles with body image, uh, predate my diabetes diagnosis. Um, before I had memories of needles lying next to birthday cake slices, I remember picking out a one piece, a one piece bathing suit because I didn't want my belly to stick out between piece ones. And I always struggled as the biggest one amongst my friends because I'm a millennial who was raised before this beautiful um, self-love revolution. I didn't really get an opportunity to see women who looked like me represented anywhere. And so I had all of these thoughts about the fact that my body was wrong and I needed to change it. And um, the fact, and then I was doing diabetes wrong. And so I needed to change the way that I was doing diabetes. And the way that we talk about insulin is so dangerous and the way that we address insulin is so dangerous and i by the time i was 14 i i had given up on being a, a good diabetic as my as my doctor always called it um, i had given up on having actual control over my diabetes and i had never gotten that initial weight loss that my brother got and i always felt really resentful of that and so i kind of i started pulling out tips and tr- like we call them tips and tricks in the Dialing Me Helpline presentation because it's it's like all the things that I did so that I didn't have to actually do my diabetes. It's ways to fool my parents into thinking that I was taking care of myself when I wasn't and just pretending I wasn't a diabetic, basically. And then eventually, when I was 14, I figured out that by not taking my insulin, I would lose weight. And that's when it all went from bad to really bad. And it went from you know binging episodes in my room and hiding the candy under the bed to binging episodes in my room, followed by an episode of DKA. Nothing, no weight happened in, in the start of a very, very dangerous road for me. I mean, what you just said is so crazy that at the age of 14, you had given up on the idea of being a good diabetic. And that is such a young age to give up. And I'd imagine even just before we started recording, you were talking about how, you know, something happened with your house. Now you're a house owner and you were like, I call my mom first thing. Right. So it sounds like you do have a great relationship with your mom and that she was just doing the best she could with what she had then. And even I had my mom on the podcast at the end of last year and 
we were talking about relationship to food stuff. I don't know if you listened to that episode, but I was like, were you even like thinking about, hey, the way I, you know, we talk about food as a family or, you know, we don't want it to, you know, lead to an eating disorder. She's like, absolutely not. She was like, that was not even in my mind that those things were connected. And I actually found a stat on the diabulimia health, um, uh, uh, the, the, the website you have, and it was talking about, um, women and type 1 diabetes have a 2.4 times greater risk of developing an eating disorder than their non-diabetic peers. And I'm like, I am so grateful that this is a conversation that we're having today, not only for us as a way to heal from what led as children to, you know, our relationship to food as adults, as type ones, but also for the parents who have kids and especially kids that are, you know, um, women who, you know, they can just be more mindful of the way that we talk about food instead of good and bad food. Like, you know, these are easier to bolus for foods, more challenging to bolus for foods. Like the intentionality there is so, so, so key. But, you know, for you, it really sounds like it wasn't as simple as your doctor or your parents just being like, give more insulin or, you know, we need to, you know, you just work, watch your numbers more and you need to do this better. Like it was so deep rooted and no matter what they said, it was about you, the way that you were identifying with yourself, the way you saw yourself in the mirror when you looked at, you know, yourself every day and really comes down to self-worth. So, I mean, how long did you hide that for, would you say like that, that wound? I mean, how long did I hide my disordered eating? I think since I was a child, I I never had like a healthy relationship with food. I always used it for emotional re- reasons. There's a really great book that we recommend to a lot of our clients who have um, really um, have have zeroed in on their relationship with food as being one of the most toxic parts of their life, and it's called um, Feeding the Hungry Heart um, by Janine Roth, and it because it really talks about the emotional eating aspect outside of diabetes, outside of an eating disorder, for so much of us um, are, are complicated, whatever you want to call it, relationship to food started long before a diabetes diagnosis, started long before an eating disorder. Um, Americans in general, anyone in the Western world, tend to have a really skewed relationship with food. We don't We don't look at food the way that most of the world does. And so we tend to as as a Western society, be more likely to have eating disorders in general already and have disordered eating patterns already. And then you start to add in things like diabetes, where we're told exactly what to eat and we're told exactly how to eat it. Um, your episode on perfectionism was like, I mean, ultimate years. We, we have an entire section in our, um, our presentation on perfectionist tendencies that diabetes um, doesn't just... Uh, create perfectionist tendencies, but if they're already there, it, it perfectionist tendencies. And people with diabetes are more likely to relapse with an eating disorder than people without. And that's because of things like perfectionist tendencies where you tell someone with diabetes, well, like at 60% time and range is great, but you know what's better? 75%. And you know better than that? 85%. And you know better than that? 95%. And my perfectionist tendency that has been tracking food or trying to reach a macronutrient, you know, deficient, like either deficiency or efficiency, depending on kind of what I'm doing, finally goes, okay, I'm going to put that to the side and do something different. I'm going to have perfect numbers. And then when I can't hit my perfect numbers, I relapse because I realize if I can't be a perfect diabetic, why try it all? And most of the people that come to us are trying to hit this level of perfection that doesn't exist. And it doesn't exist in diabetes and it can't exist in your food either. And so, so many of them are like, I want it all 
or nothing. And you can't have either. You have to have some. Like, oh, I loved one of your episodes where you were like, yeah, I actually eat pizza. Do you guys think I don't eat pizza? And I go back to seconds sometimes. I grab a slice and then I tell myself, if you want seconds, girl, go back and get seconds. And it's the intentionality, right? Like, it's knowing I can get seconds. It's giving myself permission to go get seconds. And I love that because one of the ways that you treat, the only re- way you can really treat an eating disorder is by teaching someone how to eat intuitively. And if you tell a diabetic to eat intuitively, they think, well, you're telling me that I'm going to go eat a whole pie, cherry or pepperoni. And you're like, no, I'm telling you, you can eat a piece of a pie. And if you want a second piece, go have it. And if you want the whole pie, go have it. But you need to do what's right for you in that moment and give yourself the, the chance to do it, the option to do it. Because when you tell yourself you can't, that's when you eat the whole pie. And I have eaten whole pies, cherry and pepperoni. <laughs> oh, I and I and I relate to that. And I um this this topic energizes me so much. Aaron, I, you know, last year for you know our health coaching certification, we have to get 36 hours of continued education. And I took a 12-week course on um emotional eating. And it's actually based in the UK. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's for practitioners. It's called the Eating Freely program. And it's to help, it's to help people who are, you know, working with patients or clients helping them, you know, better help and support relationship to food challenges. And the, it was really interesting because I was the only practitioner in the space and coach in the space that works with the diabetes, you know, population. And so they were really curious to know from their end of things, there was this, a psychologist who was leading the program and she was like, you know, they would talk about how intuitive eating and just getting away from the rules and the guidelines and and all that, how that fits in with diabetes, because in a way you can never just completely turn a blind eye and say, okay, I'm just not going to care about carbs. And I'm just going to sit on the couch and I feel like having a tub of ice cream. I'm going to like, listen to my, not a tub, but like, I'm going to listen to my craving. Like what if your blood sugar is 300 or 400 in that moment? Like it is such a journey to get there, but my perspective on this, because I do come from, um, I had that perfectionistic tendency and went through, you know, about five years of what felt like prison in my mind of relationship to food challenges. And I am truly like, I would say almost 100%, if like 98%, you know, healed from that. And it is possible. And the way is, is really in my eyes, like learning your body's patterns, because if you can learn how to more effectively give insulin for, let's say pizza or ice cream or like tools and tactics, like it does allow for more freedom because now it's not a trade-off. It's not, okay, I can intuitively eat the food, but then my blood sugar is going to go to 400 and then I'm going to get in this cycle of like, then I'm going to want to restrict again and then leads to the emotional eating or the binge. Like you can kind of have a little bit of best, you know, best of both worlds, but also at the same time know that there's a trade-off. You're not going to be 100% time and range if you are doing those things, but you will be closer to 100% happy because it's more sustainable. I always say, what's the point of having a good blood sugar if you're not having a good life? I mean, what, what, are, what are you gaining? You know, if your A1C is, you know, 0.5 better and you gain an extra three years, what's the point if those are miserable three years and the 30 years that came before it were, are, were awful? You know, we, we talk about people relapse when they are more like people who have um, lower A1Cs by, I think it's 1.2 points. I'd have to look up the statistics exactly. But that like more under six, so it's like 5.5 and under, are more likely to end up with higher mental health disorders, higher eating disorder numbers, because they're, what are they doing to keep themselves in those range? Usually they're on keto diets 
that are very, very strict that have that don't allow any room to have cheat days or wiggle rooms or whatever you want to call them. It gives them absolutely no freedom to just live life. It usually involves, you know, no room to not exercise on a day when they don't feel like not exercising and not feeling good. Just let their body listen to their body. And like today, my body's sick. And today my body wants to not go to the gym today. My body needs to rest it to give themselves no room for grace. And if you don't allow yourself grace, then when you fall, you, it feels like a, a, a fall so much farther, you know, like if I can't, if I can't not go to the gym one day, if I can't have a meal one day that goes over my macronutrient limit, then everything has been a waste. The last six months have been a waste. The last what I might as well just give up. And so you really, you really need to listen to that, that voice that says it's, it's okay. You don't, you don't need, you don't need to be perfect every day. It'll, it, it will be okay. Yeah. And, and I, there's something that I've been thinking about for the past like month, month and a half that I cannot get out of my head. And I haven't, ex- I haven't found the right way to express it or in what context. And I, I want to talk about it now and get your take on this, but it's this idea that on social media or on any kind of platform where it's a one way, like right now we're just, you and I are talking, but there's, you know, thousands of people that are going to listen to this. Or if you post something on Instagram, there's a lack of what we have in real life, which is context collapse. And so the thought is, is that depending on who you are sharing information with in real life, like if you are, you know, talking about um, relationship to food, you're going to talk to one person one way about it. Like, let's say it's your mom or your sister in a different way that you're going to talk to, you know, a close friend versus somebody you're meeting at, you know, a restaurant and it comes up like just in different contexts, you're going to change the details, the more you know about the person that you're talking about. And so all this to say, I think what gets challenging around one-sided platforms and media is that they're this is a message that really should be shaped to the person that is like specifically listening to it because we're talking about here, you know, somebody's going to resonate to that about if they're a perfectionist and they have a 5.7A1C, what they need to hear in context of, you know, in, in the context of this conversation is, hey, letting go is what's necessary. Like learning how to go outside your comfort zone is going to help you to grow, not just eating the same foods, not weighing your food all the time, not just doing this, this, and this and living in your box. But for somebody who has, let's say, an 8A1C, it's still relationship to food we may be talking about, but they might be feeling like, I don't you know, want to change anything now that I'm diagnosed and I'm just going to eat the way that I used to eat and I'm going to, you know, or I'm just going to um, diet and, and, and try that to go, try that to be the solution. But then if it's not, I'm going to end up in like a binge restrict cycle. So it really does depend on the person, but relationship to food does play a role no matter kind of like where your A1C is at. Does that make sense? I haven't practiced articulating that yet. So, and it wasn't planning to, so I hope it can, um, hope it can, hope it resonates, but ultimately also to say, you know, that's why you can post something on social media and then get one person to respond being like, Oh my God, that resonates so much. And the other person being like, did you consider X, Y, and Z? And like, I don't really think that message. And I'm just like, oh, like if I was talking to you and I knew your background, I'd probably frame it differently, but it's hard to do and make everyone happy. But I think that's where it comes from. I think it's definitely hard to make everybody happy, especially on social media, um, because yeah, everybody's story is so different. And one person who's coming to me and is talking to me and who does nothing but binge um, and someone else who comes to me and talks to me does nothing but restrict. I'm going to have very different messages for those two people um, because somebody is is, is trying to add um, macronutrients into their diet and somebody's trying to figure out how to be around food without constantly feeling the need to eat it. 
And so those are two very different messages because those are two very different instincts and pathologies. And so I think that's that's really important to understand is that the pathologies behind um, restriction and binging are very different. And so the messaging should be very different. Diabulimia is a really unique pathology because it has uh, or a really unique condition because it has pathologies both of uh, restriction because you're restricting insulin, something that you need, but you're also binging because technically um, any or you're technically purging, sorry, because you're purging all the calories out uh, through your urine. And so it has pathologies of both um, anorexia and bulimia, which is kind of why it sits in a, a weird um, subgroup in, in the diagnostic uh, manual. And so I think it's really important when, we, when we're doing our messaging that we remember that we can't make every 100% everyone happy. We're never going to. Our, our messages, especially around food, are, 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 always best, are always going to be best when they can be as personalized as possible. Um, it's one of the reasons why every client we that that comes that comes to us, be it through email, Instagram, the hotline, how, however they contact us, um, we find them exactly the resource that they need. Usually, it's a, a a doctor of some kind, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, an endocrinologist, and the person that we find for them is someone who is experienced in both diabetes and eating disorders, and. And it's somebody that's tailor fit for them. Um, it, it not, and, and, it, and if you call me from the middle of the Appalachian Mountains, there's probably not going to be someone in your area, if we're being honest. And the amount of training I can do for a doctor in the Appalachian Mountains, I'll do my best, but it might, it might only go so far. But I might find someone who does telehealth and treats everywhere who is really great about body image, who I can teach about diabetes, and that's the person we're going to send to you. Because what matters the most is your relationship to food at the base. And what matters the most is your relationship to your diabetes at the base. And so those are the two, two things that need to be really strong is your relationship to diabetes. So you can say, I woke up at 300 today and I have no idea why. Or I have an interview with Lauren Boniorno in an hour. So my adrenaline is spiking and I am 200 and, and that's fine. And you have to be able to say, I need to stop uh, this client call because I have an interview in half an hour and I need to eat. Like you have to be able to do those two things because food has to be something that you know is critical and insulin has to be something you know is critical and 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 both have to be something that you're like, oh, I messed up today. Oh, that's not good. And you have to be able to say, we, we had a, a Super Bowl party yesterday. So we had pizza. I know you had pizza yesterday. Um, Saturday, uh, one of our closest friends had her birthday and because it's, it's Mardi Gras this week, it's also Fat Tuesday. So they call it fat birthday. And so we had gumbo and etouffee and all of the New Orleans special. So uh, we called it fat weekend because we had we had New Orleans food on Saturday and the Super Bowl on Sunday. And it was just a weekend full of food. And there were some, most of the weekend I was I was good. Some of the days I was uh, some some of the it, was, it wasn't a great it wasn't always, you know, the perfect weekend. But knowing that, like that's. That's fine. I had a great weekend. I had two parties. I got to see so many friends and family. And like the fact that like that's what I focus on, that's I mean, to me, that's that's happiness. That's health, that's recovery. And that's really at the end of the day so much more important than, oh, I woke up and I'm I'm two fifty. And if you can get to that point where like that doesn't that doesn't turn into a spiral, that doesn't turn into a shame spiral, that doesn't take you to a place where Say, oh, I'm 250. I might as well go get a donut and make it 350. I might as well 
go eat a bowl of granola and 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 watch it go hi because i'm already out of range like those allotting yourself that amount of normal diabetes ups and downs right and the relationship to the number is so important because you can have usually two extremes of imbalance happen one is somebody sees a high number and is very attached to that and says, okay, now I have to go into a period of restriction. Okay. I'm fasting for the rest of the day, or I'm, you know, only eating vegetables or whatever it is in their mind. And then eventually that has an end, right? That rubber band's going to snap because that's not sustainable. You're not really nourishing your body, but then you have on the flip side, somebody who's seeing that 250 and then going into the shame spike spiral that you just shared, where it's like, screw it. I already messed up. I am not perfect anymore. And that's, you know, we can move, we can, you know, just start over tomorrow or start over next week or whenever that is for them. One thing that we we do in Risely Coaching, and I want to, you know, PSA, and you know this, Erin, but we don't work with anybody who is like an in active diabolemia um, and not getting outside support as well, or like eating disorder, but everybody, you know, has with diabetes, some kind of relationship to food challenges. It's a spectrum for sure. And something we do with people who come in who are perfectionist is we'll do a chart where, um, it's, in, it's the, the week is broken up into obviously seven days. And then each day there's three boxes on the day. And the whole point is like, as you're going through the day, put like a check mark on when you are really nourishing your body, like you're eating, you're not that not having this mindset of perfection if your numbers go high you're not like punishing yourself in some way and instead of looking at it as a checkbox for the day you're actually checking the box in terms of the morning afternoon and night so it's this whole theory of um you have three chances to succeed instead of one chance to fail and that seems to help people move past the when i have a high blood sugar in the morning or when i am at my work party and i have you know, a food that's, let's say, harder to bowl is for not seen as like nourishing in their eyes. It's like, okay, that was the morning time. And now let's go to the next section of the day. So I think too, like mindset hacks like that and tools and strategies to, you know, move you closer to your goal of living more intuitively and freely and not being attached to the number can, you know, are really helpful in the journey. Um, I don't know if you have a specific comment on that, but I would like to circle back and understand, you know, what has helped you most on your journey with diabolemia and that healing process. Oh God, it's so basic, but journaling. Um, I, I have been through um, an eating sort of uh, treatment center. Um, this was before there were any diabolemia specific ones though. This was before, this was long, long time ago. And so I, I, I went to a very basic eating sort of treatment center and I've had many therapists. Um, and I, I think one of the problems is, is that most of them did not have diabetes eating disorder specific training. And I think that it would have gone a lot farther had that existed when I uh, initially sought out therapy. Um, when I sought out therapy the second time, I sought out therapy specifically for people with diabetes and eating disorder training, because at that point in time, um, that had started becoming a movement because um, we'd been in the field for a while. But I think the thing that worked the most, because I could do it myself, I could do it at any moment. I could do it when things get hard um, with journaling. I, I would stop in, and I still, I journal. So well, two things. I, I, at the beginning, I would stop in the middle of the day if I, if I was having a struggling thought and journal. And I keep all of my journals. So I have my journals from 15 years ago from when I walked out of, out of, out of um, my recovery center. And I still have them in my office on a bookcase in case if something happens and I just decide, you know, it would be fun to die again. Uh, I can just turn around and pick up that journal and be like, would it be? 
because it was not fun to recover from it. And I think I think letting all the darkness that's inside out onto a page um, does something really healthy. And it also, you when you see it and you see the logic you're using, there's a part of your brain that says, this isn't logic. This is madness. And there's part of you that goes, yeah, this this doesn't make sense. This isn't, this isn't right. There's, there's something in your brain there that's not you. There, there's something here that is not, that is not right. And I, I do think that once you get it down onto black and white, now I'm, I'm old school. I don't type out. I, I, I journal with pen and paper. And there are actually studies that say that journaling with pen and paper um, is more therapeutic, that it offers more therapeutic benefits. And that um, because it makes you stop and slow down and slow down, it also helps with breathing and breathing helps with stress. And so I, I'm a, a big fan of, of pen and paper journaling. And I also, and I know you, you're a big fan of this, I do gratitude um, exercises every night. And so every single night, and this is actually a, a rather recent thing I was doing because I thought I was starting to get rather... I think just complacent. I was starting to feel rather complacent in my life. Um, and I, there was part of me that was like, how can you feel complacent when there are so many, so much beautiful things around you that you should be inspired by and grateful for? And, and, and that gives you such hope. Um, and so I realized, you know, I, I, I need to, I need to remind myself of, of all of these things. And so I started doing a, a three and every night I do three things I'm grateful for. And then I make one big goal for the next day. And it, it has all, it's, it's been, like you said, my mind shift, uh, mindset shift. Um, because the next day I don't wake up being like, Oh, there's all the stuff I've got to do. I wake up being like, Oh, there's, I've got a goal. And God, isn't the world beautiful. I, I got to play with my new puppy and he is so cute. And he discovered his reflection yesterday and he is scared of it. And, and I think that is the cutest thing I've seen in, in ever. And then that's my, my thought when I'm waking up. Cause I wake up next to my, I do it like in bed right before I fall asleep. It's like the last thing I do. So that, that grateful feeling is the last feeling I have at night. Well, I think it's really interesting. You know, when you're in a place of, not feeling great, right? If you do the things, if you get fresh air and you hydrate and you say the things that you're grateful for and you put down your phone and you're, you know, present with people who love you and you're, you know, hugging your family and you're just like in that moment fully present. Like when you do all those those things, our mental health collectively and, you know, individually is so much better. And I think a lot of us think like, like, why does it have to be that hard like why can't we naturally why can't we naturally just like be in that state and I think what I'm hearing from you is like you know that you have to do the work because if you don't do the work that is when you're going to slip and maybe your miss your journey like you're um you know more likely you know to have those challenges with your body, mental health, or whatever it is from, you know, an early childhood compared to somebody else. But regardless, we all have to show up for ourselves in some way to feel our best, some people more than others, but you actively doing the work is what is keeping you, you know, moving forward and and living in that space of, um, you know, just hope for yourself. So if you were to share where you are today in terms of the recovery process and what people who are maybe actively struggling now, like maybe you were 10, 15 years ago, like what would you say to them to give them hope and motivation? Why, you know, keeping along the path is worth it? That's a good 
question. I will say when I came back from my eating disorder treatment center when I was uh, 19, I reached out to a major diabetes organization in the country and asked for help. And they said, this is an eating disorder problem, not ours, not, not us. And uh, so I reached out to a major eating disorder organization in the country and I said, this is what I'm doing. And they said, this is a diabetes problem, not us. And there were academic stats that went back to the 80s. And my, my aunt, my paternal aunt, my dad's sister, um, reached out to me and said, I did this. I did this as a teenager. I, she ate from the sugar bowl, spoon after spoon, which can you imagine how disgusting that is? So she could raise her blood sugar, so she could put herself in DKA, so she could pee out the calories, so she could get skinny. So I knew this had been happening for 30 years at that point, and no, no one wanted to talk about it. And all I could think was, this, there, there has to be something. Like there, if, if, and at that point, the stats were pretty similar. I think at that point, the stat was 30%. 30% of women with type 1 diabetes are doing this, and no one's doing anything. And I felt so despondent and I felt like we were this small niche group of people that nobody cared about, that we could just be thrown away because we were, we were people with diabetes and we weren't taking care of ourselves. So who cared about us? And we could, you you know, if we felt through the cracks, it's fine. And then I thought like, if 30% of women in America just weren't eating, the whole world, well, America, would be in uproar. And how how could it be that this whole group was just thrown away by society because we were just like this niche, niche population? And so that's when we started DBH, when I started DBH. And the first thing I did was I looked for community. I looked for community. I looked for community. I looked for community. So we started as a Facebook support group. We still have that same Facebook support group. We actually, uh, our 15 year anniversary is this year. Um, I'm really excited about all of the things that we have planned for this year because it, it is what it was. It's the backbone of, of DBH um, is community. And if you're someone who's thinking, I, I'm never going to recover. I'm never going, I'm never going to be in a place better than this. I didn't think there was any hope for me. I, I truly believed the world had left me to die and that nobody was coming for me. Nobody was coming for us, that we were, we were a, 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 left, a left population. And then, and then community happened. One pe- person group joined the group and another person joined the group and another person joined the group. And then within six months, there was 500 of us. And by the end of the year, it was at 1,000. And now there are 5,000 of us. I mean, well, no, that... There are a lot of us, thousands of us, many, many of us from all over the world. Our admin staff is also from all over the world. So if you go there at any time of the day, um, you because if, it, if it's, you know, 10 o'clock, you know, my time or 12 o'clock my time, it's 8 a.m. in the UK. And so we've always got an admin that's up, you know, to help somebody if it's an immediate um, concern. We have the hotline, which runs uh, 24 hours a day. Uh, seven days a week, which I would have loved to have back in the day. I mean, Nita's hotline stops working at 5 p.m., but we all know that like your crises don't happen between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. They they go until 2 a.m. in the morning. And so if you want to call Christmas Eve, 2 a.m., we're open. 
we've got a volunteer to talk to you. And it's someone with diabetes. All of our volunteers are people who have diabetes and who struggle with a mental health challenge. So this is someone who's been where you've been. And it's, I would talk to them and I would call and say, I'm struggling. I, I feel burnt out or I feel like I can't do it anymore. And I, I'd call the hotline. I joined the support group. Uh, you can post anonymously now. And I'd say, reach out for community and find people like you who are struggling the way that you've struggled because there's nothing more hopeful than knowing you're not alone, than knowing, and, and we are not meant to do this alone. As, as a species, humans aren't meant to do this alone. And knowing that we have a community out there, people that don't just have diabetes, but have diabetes and a mental health challenge and you know exactly what you have. There's someone in our group who has it. We have a diabetes group and mental health. We have a dipolemia group, you know, we've expanded it to five different groups so that whatever you want to talk about, there's someone there that wants to listen. What is the number for the hotline, the crisis hotline? The hotline is 1-425-985-3635. So if you are listening and you're actively struggling with diabolemia, it could be that you've talked to people before. It could be like, you've never said a word and this is something that's just been like a weight on your shoulders weighing you down and you haven't found the right outlet um, that feels safe and you know you but you do knew that you, you do know that you need support um, reach out to the crisis hotline Erin and her team are absolutely amazing and I think that's a great first place to start and they can help guide you and you can have somebody in your corner to move you forward towards you know living a happier, healthier life. Erin, the last question that I that I have for you, because I think it's really important that we touch on. So one of the reasons why I have not had anybody, you know, talk about diabolemia or we haven't put out a lot of content around it until this point is because I once read that talking about diabolemia more can actually generate more awareness and people who don't even, I knew I didn't even, I know that I didn't even know about really diabolemia until probably 15 years into living with diabetes. Like it just was something that I never connected or didn't know about. Um, and it can actually like exacerbate and like, you know, get people curious about what that insulin restriction looks like. So um, but ultimately, I will say I decided to have you on because I do think that people are going to do it regardless of if we're talking about it or not. And it is more important to bring awareness to the support that's out there, to the problems that it could cause and the complications it can lead to. So I do want to make sure that you speak to the you know, list of the long-term effects and the short-term effects of diabolemia and why it is so important that people you know, get support if they are struggling with relationship to restricting insulin? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's such a great question. And we've struggled with that for the last 15 years. There was actually a two-year period where um, us and our um, UK sister organization that we we uh, formed a couple years after we formed, we did a media blackout across across the globe. We, we stopped working with all publications because um, several um, clients had come to us who said, yeah, I, I, I learned about this from X article or Y article. And we were like, we cannot be the reason that people are, are discovering diabolemia and the answer. We can't be the, the cause of the problem and the solution. And then about 1,500 people came to us and said, I learned about this at diabetes camp. I figured this out on my own. I figured this out on my own. Of the people that come to us, about 75% of us, about 75% of them say, I figured it out on my own. And then about 
10% say I learned about it through a diabetic friend or on uh, from a diabetes camp. And the rest say I learned about it online. Um, it's being talked about in diabetes groups. It's being posted about in um, diabetes articles, regardless of what we want to what we want to happen. And at this point, it's just we can't we can't do anything about it being out there. So we just have to make sure that the resources to combat it are are just as prevalent as the information about it. And what what has been shown scientifically is that putting more information out there about things like drugs, alcohol, sex, eating disorders. It doesn't increase the likelihood of someone doing it, but putting safe resources out there does increase the likelihood of someone minimizing the, the, the harmful effects. And I will say for something like diabulimia, it is the most dangerous, it, it is the most dangerous eating disorder out there. Anorexia, which, which, has, been, which has been up until now the most lethal uh, mental health disorder, has a mortality rate of 9.2%. When you include suicide, when you include suicide and diabulimia, or well, an eating disorder, uh, eating disorder with diabetes has a thirty-two percent mortality rate. So we're talking about nine percent to thirty-two percent, and the only difference is someone has diabetes. And so you don't have time really to to not to to just hope that someone is going to find us. We have to really make sure to go at, to go after the help. And, and for everyone who's listening, who's a, a family member, a caregiver, a loved one, if you suspect that someone you know has diabulimia, it really is incumbent upon you to act because as somebody who's lived with diabulimia for over 10 years, I will say that I have gastroparesis. I can't have kids. I, ha- I am in stage three kidney, dia- or ki- kidney failure. There's a lot of neuropathy. There's a whole lot of complications that come with it that are... Are forever. They are lifelong complications that that because of the diabetes that happen with diabulimia that don't happen with other eating disorders. So you can let somebody struggle on and off with some of the other eating disorders until they figure it out for themselves. Whereas with diabulimia, if you let someone struggle on and off for even five years, those diabetes complications are going to be there forever. And so what we tell loved ones is, this is not something that you can let someone figure out for themselves, especially because if someone is not taking their insulin, they are there. They have no serotonin in their body and they have a starving brain. They literally are getting no glucose to their brain. So any decision they're making isn't even a solid one. They could be ruled as not have, making sound decisions by a court. That's how messed up the biology inside of them is at that point. So that's when it's time for you to step in and say, okay, we, we need to do something. We, we need to act. We need to say therapy or whatever it might be. And if you're sitting there thinking, is this me? Is, is she talking about me? If you've said this more than once during this episode, then yes, probably. I am probably talking about you. And please call us and we will find someone in your area. That's what we do is we find resources for you. And our number is 100% free. All of our Resources are 100% free. We never charge our clients a dime, so don't be afraid to call us. We will set you up with a doctor for free. Um, You can talk to us for as long as you want for free. We have clients that call us every night because they can't take their insulin yet on their own. We talk to them as long as, as need be, and then they call back the next day. And we do that as long as they need to until they can take their insulin on their own or until they get a therapist. And we had a client that we did that with for like eight months. And then she got a therapist, and the therapist worked with her. And now she's an RD and she just got engaged. 
Oh my goodness. I'm going to cry. That is so beautiful. Like, I hope you really understand that, like the lives that you have saved and are saving. And I, I didn't mean to cut you off when I just had to jump in there. Like, just like, are you kidding me? That's crazy. It, I think my favorite story is we have a client that joined our support group like 12 years ago and she was in a, a really toxic, scary marriage. Um, and, and she was a, a blackjack dealer who was like, borderline suicidal, um, really didn't want to live anymore, didn't want to die, but didn't want to live, was not taking her insulin. Um, she this Today, she got out of her bad marriage, married a really good guy, had a new baby. She went from being a licensed vocational nurse, a registered nurse, a CDCES, and now she's a nurse practitioner. She was one of our keynote speakers at our conference in London, and she has now been asked to be a keynote speaker at the IADEP conference in March. Um, and uh, her son is now four years old. So those are the ones for me is when, and when someone goes back into medicine to give back to the community and then the kids. Those are the ones that make my heart happy. Well, I can't imagine a better note to end on. I, I feel like we have to end on that high there. Erin, thank you so much for coming on. I could talk to you for another two hours. So we definitely need like another part two to have you back at some point. Thank you so much for your openness, your honesty, your transparency, your, you know, in, in just inspiration that you've brought to us today. Um, I want to like give you a hug right now and just tell you that like, and not even tell you, but tell your like younger 14 year old self that day that you felt like there's, you know, nothing else you could have done to be worth seen as a quote unquote good diabetic. Like I just want to tell that little girl that like you are enough and you are just on your journey, like everyone else, just figuring out how to love themselves and to find themselves and to heal and to ultimately give back in the world in, in some way which you have done so thank you so so much thank you for everything you do for the diabetes community it, it's so special to me to get to come on after listening to so many uh, amazing stories on your podcast and so many of the people that you've worked with are people that I've worked with and so many inspirational people that have come from through your programs that I've sent to your programs and I'm just I'm so happy to be here and I just want to say to anyone listening, you know, we go by DBH now um, for a lot of reasons. And the main one is, is that it, it stands for dream, believe, hope, because those are the three things that you get stripped of when you have an eating disorder are your dreams, your belief in your ability to make anything happen and your hope. And, you know, if, if that's where you are, where you, you've lost all of that, your dreams, your belief, your hope, call us and, and we'll give it back to you one at a time, your dreams, your belief, your hope, it, it can happen. It, it's all out there for you. And nothing is, is too far out of, out of reach and we'll make it happen. Amen to that. Oh, like a Phoenix. absolutely. Erin, once again, thank you. Thank you to everyone listening. We are going to share all of the resources in the show notes below. You can reach out directly to DBH or to us and we can help, you know, facilitate that introduction if you need it. Um, and yes, just be well. And you have so many just so much support in your corner that you might not even realize. So we're all here for you. All right, Erin, take care. We'll see you soon. Oh my gosh. I wish we were in person doing this together so I could give you a hug. Yeah, it went so well. Oh my gosh. You're so magical. You're so well-spoken. And I'm so glad we made this, made time for this. 
Oh, me too. I was so nervous. I was like, something's going to happen. A dog is going to bark. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here with me today and listening to this episode of Reclaim Your Rise. To let us know that the episodes we're putting out are impactful and to help us get our street cred up and let everyone else know that this is something worthy of their time to listen to, please leave a rating and review on our Apple podcast, send the show to other people impacted by T1D or maybe even your doctor, and share it on social media tagging at Risely Health and at Lauren underscore Bongiorno. New episodes of Reclaim Your Rise come out every single Tuesday, so make sure you are subscribed to the podcast so that you never miss a beat. Thanks again for listening, and as always, remember, diabetes is a challenge that we did not choose, but one that we can rise above.